Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hello and welcome back to The Political Podcast. This is the second of two specials recorded at this summer's Edinburgh Festival. This one features former leader of the SNP and uh, currently leading education in Scotland, John Swinney. Uh, John is someone that I've had a lot of respect for for a very long time. And I remember seeing him in a cafe in Edinburgh a couple of years ago. And I'm usually the sort of person that will just go up to people and introduce myself and ask them if they come on the show. But John was with his family and it just felt so inappropriate to approach him. Uh, and I've always rued the fact that I never took that opportunity. So thankfully, I, I'm, I was at an event with him earlier this year and was able to um, arrange for him to come on the show. I don't want to ruin anything, but John is one of the most hypnotic guests I've ever had and uh, is exceptionally dignified and very thoughtful and very honest about his own time as leader of the SNP uh, and, the, and the, the events of that period and the progress of the party during that era. And it is, uh, it is one of the most hypnotic... Uh, guests that I've had. So do enjoy this. It's live from the Edinburgh Festival with John Swinney. Thank you very much. Thank you. Oh, too kind. Thank you very much. Hello, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome. Thank you very much. Welcome to the political party at the Edinburgh Festival. Um, Just by means of a cheer, give me a cheer if you've been to a political party recording or listened to the podcast before. Excellent. And give me a cheer if you haven't. Excellent. Well, the newcomers were in the majority, so that's good. Um, well, for, those, for the uninitiated, uh, the Political Party is a show that I started in London about six years ago and I've done at the Edinburgh Festival every summer since. Uh, the idea being uh, that it's fascinating to hear from politicians from all sides of the spectrum and that there needs to be a place to talk in a civil manner and a respectful way with politicians, particularly... Um, in the last few years. So the idea is that it's a respectful uh, audience, that, um, that we listen with, uh, with respect and interest to our guest. Of course, it's fine to disagree, um, but the idea is that it's uh, an informal and friendly environment. Uh, today's guest is someone that I've been trying to get hold of uh, for a number of years, and I'm delighted uh, that he is absolutely... Uh, um, for, the, for the uninitiated, um, this is something that I say nearly every week, but it's always true. <laughs> it is always true, because every guest I've had on the show has been superb. Uh, He is a titan of Scottish politics and respected across the political divide, a former leader of the Scottish National Party. Please give a huge welcome to the wonderful John Swinney. Welcome to the show. Thank you. Well, thank you for coming on. My pleasure. Delighted to be here. And this is, uh, this is a, a building you know well. I, I do know this building well. Um, I studied at Edinburgh University, and then just a couple of years before I was finishing, uh, I got this job uh, as part of the Fringe. This TV row used to be made into the Fringe Club, and uh, it was a sort of gathering place for different acts to perform. There was a bit of drinking went on here, a bit of eating went on here. And, of course, in an environment like that, what do you need? You need bouncers. So I was recruited as one of the bouncers. <laughs> Did you have a skinhead back I, then? I'm, I'm a little bit worried about that. <laughs> that caused so much hilarity out there. Um, <laughs> yes, I, was, uh, I didn't know I had a full head of hair in those days. And uh, I was one of the bouncers. So I stood in the front door and judged who was suitable to come into this respectable 
icon of <laughs> Edinburgh University property and uh, see whether they could and behave themselves. And what sort of answer were you? Were you, were you fair? Were you was, uh, physical? It, oh, I wasn't physical. No, no, no. I was pretty fair. Although one of my friends um, had the mistake, I think there was a bit of an altercation going on one night, and um, he, uh, most of us ducked when the, kind of <laughs> the trouble flared up, and uh, this guy got hit on the head by one of these, I don't know, anyone of a certain age in the audience will remember these things. They were McEwan's export tumblers, <laughs> which had a really thick handle, very thick kind of, um, sort of bent glass on them. And well, this one, my friend's got this slapped over his head. So it was quite a, thank God I ducked that night. That would have, <laughs> things would have gone very differently if it hadn't been the case. And how did that prepare you for a, a career in Scottish politics? It was, <laughs> it, was, um, it, was it was probably the best bit of preparation I've done in all my 40 years of involvement in Scottish politics. So back then you were a student, you'd have been 18, 19, around that age, but you'd already, you'd already become politicised. At 15, you joined uh, the SNP. Yep. Now, I read somewhere, and it may not be true, but that you joined the SNP after you were so incensed at the coverage of the 1978 Olympics. Actually, actually, well, what the story goes, and this was written by somebody, and, and you know, you'll know in the world of, sort of journalistic commentary, once something is written by one person, it becomes the holy grail. So, yep. Have you read my reviews? <laughs> well, they are, of course, the holy grail, Matt, yeah. And so this story got written that of a comment that I had made where I'd said, look, you know, it gets a bit frustrating when, and I think the sportsman I was talking about was David Wilkie, who was a swimmer. And every time David Wilkie was a success, he was a British success. And every time he lost, he was a Scottish David Wilkie. <laughs> so I'd made some comment like this and that before I knew it became, that was the moment that politicized John Swinney. So I wouldn't quite script it like that, <laughs> but around about that period, I had become very much aware of politics and very interested and committed to Scottish independence. Because around that time, late 70s, Britain had just been through the, the winter of discontent, you were having the collapse of the Labour government, you had the rise of Mrs Thatcher. Um, at that time, a lot of people in Scotland were being politicised on the left. Did you consider yourself a left-wing person at that point? Yeah, but the, thing, the other thing which essentially affected my thinking was that I was... Um, I was totally opposed to nuclear weapons. So, that, so the nuclear issue had politicised me in my early teens, and I was completely motivated by that. And that had a bearing on, well, what's the way, what's the means of getting rid of nuclear weapons from Scottish soil and waters? Well, mm. only the SNP was committed to doing that through independence. So that essentially made my mind up for me. So it was the nuclear issue that sort of politicised me first, and I ended up in the SNP, and um, that was the, the, essentially the, the way in which I felt it was best to articulate my political thinking. must be an incredible feeling now to, to be a, a prominent member of, a, of an SNP government that's been in for, for over 10 years, a, a, a real high watermark in terms of popularity and reputation, even despite the 2017 election results, still by far and away the most popular party in Scotland. To, to, to sit at this point having joined the party in the, in the late 70s and been through... I mean, even in the 90s and early noughties, the SNP were nowhere near the, the force that they are today. Well, the one thing that I think, of all the things... I get accused of many things, but I don't think anyone could reasonably accuse me 
of joining the SNP to get a political career. Because <laughs> I, I, I joined the SNP in 1979 when we just had an absolute calamity. You know, we'd lost nine of our 11 parliamentary seats at Westminster. And I thought, well, if you care about this issue, you better do something about it, uh, rather than just say, well, that's, you know, it was a really, and Scotland was a really, um, you know, the country was very down at that time. You know, Thatcher had just been elected. It was the harbinger of what we knew was coming our way in terms of industrial decline and difficulties. So there wasn't a lot of optimism about And I chose to join the SNP, which frankly was going absolutely nowhere at the time and went nowhere for quite some time thereafter. So of all the things I could be accused of, pursuing a political career was not one of them. I was pursuing my politics. But then to contrast that with where we are today is an incredible experience. If I'd said to somebody, literally in 1979, um, you know, in a few years' time, I probably actually, I probably did say it to people in this, <laughs> and, and this was a debating hall, but it was also a bit of a kind of drinking den in, in the university as well. I might have gone up to somebody and said, you know, there's things are looking up for the SNP and we're, we're bound to do better in the future, and you never know, we might even someday have a parliament. In the late mid-80s, they would have said, not a hope. Absolutely. Swinney's had an extra pint. You know, he's gone, he's lost all sense of reason by what he's saying. Whereas, so it is incredible to look at the change that's that's happened over that period and to have had a a role in shaping that change. Was there ever a point in the 80s, maybe in the 90s, um, where you thought, you know, the party itself isn't getting the profile, isn't getting the, the results at the ballot box? maybe I'd be better off joining the, the Lib Dems or the Greens or, or the Labour Party to at least achieve some of what you want to no, out of politics. No, no, I was, I, I was, you know, I, I kind of come from a, a view that, well, when I go back to what I said to you a moment ago, that I joined the SNP because I saw independence as a vehicle to make Scotland the type of country I wanted it to be, which was a non-nuclear country, I couldn't see that on offer anywhere else. So... That was what had prompted me to come into politics. And if I wasn't in the SNP, I wouldn't be in politics. So it wasn't a choice for me about, well, what's my, what's my best route? What's my best option? I had no interest in, in that kind of calculation. It was, but, the, you know, but there were certainly times in the 1980s where I thought to myself, I wonder if the SNP is going to survive this. Mm. And there were definitely moments where internal division, electoral difficulty, all sorts of things, I would think, I'm not sure we're going to make it through this. Well, internal division is an interesting area because at the moment for the SNP, it doesn't seem to really exist, certainly not publicly. Um, The the parliamentary group in Westminster is is loyal and disciplined and it's the same in Holyrood. And if anything, uh, I think even the harshest critics of the SNP would say that the party has a discipline and a... a loyalty that, that other parties would, would give their right arms for. It's, it's, it's a very impressive, well-drilled machine now. Yes, but it's not always been like that, Matt, or anything like it. Um, you know, I, I led the SNP from 2000 to 2004, and I think, again, folk would probably say, well, the SNP was probably at its most internally turbulent at that time. And, yes, we were internally turbulent, and it was a really tough climate, and we didn't do very well electorally, as a consequence, I think, of the lack of internal cohesion. And I think people in the SNP had a look at that period and 
you know, I was well supported as party leader. I had, you know, the party membership was very supportive. I have a, a very deep bond with the party member, a very deep relationship with the party membership. They're hugely supportive of me. They, and many of them grieved about the fact that I was giving up the leadership because of the fact that we weren't progressing a lot, in my view, to do with internal division. Yeah. And I think a lot of folk in the SNP looked at that and said, we don't fancy that anymore. We're going to do things differently. Yeah. So in 2007, when we, to many people's surprise, including my own, we emerged as the largest party in the Scottish Parliament elections. There were 47 of us in the Scottish Parliament, there were 46 Labour members, and we formed the government. It was so clear to every one of us that if we, frankly, didn't operate like a team where we had our discussions privately about what we were doing, how we were doing it, how we were trying to work our way through things, if we didn't do that, we'd be down, we'd be out, and the party would never forgive us. So actually, a climate of self-discipline emerged out of that, which is, I think, part of the most precious assets of the SNP just now. So what were the pressures? Because in politics, inevitably, it's individuals, it's jealousy, it's amb the ambition of others, but they're often um, placed through the, the lens of political disagreement, whether it's the Corbynistas and the Blairites and the Labour Party, whether it's Europe and the Tories. Uh, was it the, the, the gradualists against the fundamentalists? Was that the, was that the divide? There was, a bit, there, there was quite a bit of that and a sense that um, there was a... Um, there were different routes that we could take to try to democratically win Scottish independence and I, I suppose the, 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 the debate was whether or not having a parliament with some powers was an easier route to, to, to pursue our objectives than just make one big leap from where we were to having an independent parliament. Yeah. And I came down very firmly on the side of, well, whatever powers you can get, you should attract, you should command, you should use, you should build on, you should use as a platform. And ultimately, I think how I'd sum up the SNP today is I suspect you know, we're all gradualists now because we've seen the, you know, the parliament that we've got today in 2018 is a more powerful parliament yeah. than the one that was legislated for in 1999. And so that journey is continuing to acquire more powers. Of course, obviously, we face some threats just now because one of the implications of Brexit is that we run the risk of having those powers eroded by the way in which Brexit is legislated for by the UK government. And that's, uh, we've got to watch out for that. In terms of then the tensions within the party now, obviously there's a desire on behalf of the membership and large sections of the public to have a second referendum. That desire will be shared by almost every MSP and an MP. Uh, the, the, the pros and cons on timing are, are not just about principle, are they, but also about winnability. In terms of your assessment of when the best time to have a second referendum, if you, know, you do think that that's desirable, when would be the optimum time, do you think, to, to hold it? I think it's the optimum time is when you think you can win it. Yeah, frankly. <laughs> but when do you think that'll be? You know, that's uh, and, and and I think that you know, and that's a very careful judgment that's got yeah. to be arrived at as to when the mood in Scotland is such that we think people in Scotland would vote emphatically for independence, and that will come about from a whole set of different circumstances. And obviously, the current political environment has a big bearing on uh, on 
on that and the, and the context of that, but there'll be many other factors that will affect whether or not, um, you know, wh what would be the, the ideal timing for there to be uh, a further referendum on the independence question. And is there a sort of, is there a, a, a formula at head office so people say, look, if, we're, if we can get it to 60-40, yes, no, for 18 months, that's it. Is there a kind of, is there a, is there a measure in place behind the scenes? No. Um, I think what there is is an acceptance that we have to very carefully think through what are the circumstances and the conditions that, that, that prevail and what do we, you know, how do we need to respond to that? And we have to take account of the fact that um, people must feel able to have a proper full debate and discussion about the issue mm. and to do that in a fashion that enables them to make a, a, a very clear decision about the question. In terms of the lessons of 2014, because I mean there was a period, a week, a fortnight before the, before the vote where it looked as if though actually there was this huge upset coming and it felt the momentum was definitely with, with the Yes campaign and the polling compared to the start of you know, 2012 compared to where we ended up is, is absolutely clear. The Scottish Social Attitude Survey that um, Professor Curtis does is clear that the general trend is upward. It may have, it may, the momentum may have stalled uh, of late, but in general, compared to where support for independence was, it's already near the top of the mountain. What are the things that you do, and, th and this is always difficult in politics, what are the things that you do that win over no voters without alienating yes voters? Well, I think the, the, the first thing to say is that I think the, the, the big mistake that was made by the No campaign and a lot of the commentators in the run-up to 2014 was that they looked at opinion polls which basically showed um, independent support to broadly be around about 28 to 30% consistently yeah. for most of my life and basically said, nobody's going to vote for this, this is a done deal. And that mm. was the kind of commentary background. But I think it was a bit more sophisticated than that. I think what the polling showed was that, yes, 28 to 30% of the public had thought about independence and were absolutely committed to it. Probably the same number were absolutely committed to it and had thought about the union and were absolutely never going to change their mind. And the other block had never really thought about this, yeah. but just kind of in a knee-jerk reaction to a poll said, no, 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 not for me. But what the referendum required everyone to do was to think about the question because they were going to have to vote. And of course, in la very large numbers, people registered to vote and in very large numbers, people voted in the referendum. So it was a, a, a you know, supreme achievement in terms of democratic engagement because people thought it through and, and, and participated within the referendum. And that's why we got to 45-55 because more and, and we didn't end up at 30 was because people thought about it and were persuaded by the opportunities of independence. I think what we have to do and, and, and this is something which you know I try to do in my politics and people will judge whether I succeed or whether I don't succeed in it is to is to be respectful of the fact that people might have different opinions to me and different views <laughs> and actually try to understand and respect their difference of views, articulate my views. I'm not a shrinking violet and setting out my own views about things. I, I, I do that and I sometimes do it with more vigour than I maybe should do, but <laughs> I, I do it nonetheless. Um, but to try to recognise that people have to be persuaded mm. to change their position as opposed to just thinking, 
you know, if I, if I repeat the same thing to somebody often enough, they'll just shift their view. And so there has to be, I think, a, a really good discourse about that with people, a respectful discourse. And fundamentally, I think it, you know, the reason why I think we were, um, it was looking like we were going to be successful, uh, and from my perspective, a couple of weeks before Poland in the referendum, was because people had, we'd succeeded in getting people to think about, for me, the only question that matters on this, which is what type of country do you want to live in? Mm. And people began to think, well, actually, this could be a country that could be you know, a participant within the European Union. It could be a country that could take its own decisions. It could take a radical approach on tackling poverty. It could strengthen economic opportunity for people. We'd be in a much better position to take a set of decisions that would strengthen economic opportunity in Scotland. And we got people thinking about that. And the reason why I think we were ultimately weren't successful was that people's fears took hold yeah. over their final decision. And in that group of people who were in the middle, you know, there's some folk who will never be persuaded by the merits of independence. There are some people who will never be persuaded by the merits of the union. But there's a lot of people in Scotland who want to just make the right decision about how their country should develop. And I think that's... So, so for me, making sure that the... Um, the arguments around the possibilities and the opportunities um, economic, socially and internationally about independence are really crucial. Fear is such an important part of, 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 of politics now in terms of being risk averse. And I just wonder, as, as much a catalyst for independence as Brexit may prove to be, and understandably because Scotland overwhelmingly voted to stay in the EU and, the, and will leave the EU against its will and that creates a, a genuine democratic deficit, doesn't Brexit also show that leaving unions is difficult, can have huge economic impacts, and actually a lot of the warnings about employers leaving territories turn out to be true? Well, what it means is that you've got to have um, a sensible and rational negotiation in a pragmatic way. And that's, I think that's what I think is wrong with the, the current arrangement with the, uh, that the UK government is trying to go through, because there isn't a pragmatism, because fundamentally there is an agreement about what type of uh, arrangement the UK wants to have with the European Union as a consequence of leaving. Now, we set out, and I think you have to set this out, a view about what type of arrangement you want to have when you're, when you're leaving a, a union. You have to set out what that's going to be like and be prepared to negotiate around that to get that, uh, the, the ideal arrangements in place. Um, but I think there is a, an element to which without that clarity, without that view, mm. then of course you'll end up in the type of situation that we find ourselves in in Brexit today, where it's far from clear where any of this is going, where any of it is heading, and what the implications of it will actually be. It's been interesting seeing the change from, from, the, from the White Paper in 2014 to the Sustainable Growth Commission, uh, and the suggestion now um, that after a process of sterilisation, Scotland would have its own currency. Just in terms of what that would mean, in terms of Scotland leaving the pound then using the pound and then having its own currency, potentially then having to join the euro, is that, is that the best way to win people over, do you think, on the currency argument? Does that not cre create in people's minds a sense of more chaos? Well, I think what you've got to... I think, what we sh you know, obviously we're going through a process just now as a party of looking at the contents of the Sustainable Growth Commission report, and I think it's a really fabulous piece of work. It's been... 
um, well considered by Andrew Wilson and the team that, uh, that undertook this commission uh, on, at the First Minister's invitation. Um, it goes over some pretty challenging territory. It doesn't avoid any challenges. I think it's a pretty forthright um, attempt to address some of those challenges. Uh, but, it's a, but it's a set of propositions that we've got to consider as a party as to whether or not we follow that route. And we've got a whole process of internal dialogue going on just now where members of the party are considering the contents of that, uh, that report and judging how, you know, what their reaction to it is and what their feelings are about it. Now, on the currency question, um, you know, I think the, 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 the approach put forward by the Sustainable Growth Commission is, in my view, a, a valuable and valid approach where they say, as, as I took the view in the 2014 referendum, um, in the immediate aftermath of independence, you would be best placed to use the pound sterling. We advanced after consultation the concept of a currency union, which is a perfectly um, robust and reliable approach for us to take. Um, it just met a bit of kind of unwilling participation from the Chancellor of the Exchequer at the time, <laughs> if I can put it as delicately as that. <laughs> um, the, so so the, the, the whole the concept, the consistent concept is use the pound sterling because that I think gives you yeah. the bridge that people need to see what their financial arrangements will be like post-independence compared with pre-independence. But, but what the Sustainable Growth Commission also goes on to say is that you've got to follow a certain number of steps and tests to judge whether you move on from that position to a distinctive Scottish currency or any other arrangement. And I think it's important that we have the discussion around those arrangements about using the pound sterling because it strikes me as being the most um, credible and clear way in which you could persuade people of that of the journey they've got to make. Uh, you, you touched on the relationship with the, the then Chancellor George Osborne and his interventions perhaps prior to and during the, the independence referendum. How difficult is it having a relationship with the UK government? Because you're not, it's not like different heads of state meeting each other. You are a government of Scotland that wants to actively not be part of the UK, but you have to meet the UK government and have a, some form of working relationship with them. Are there, which ministers in the past have you had better relationships <laughs> with and, and which one's worse? Well, it's quite, it's quite funny. Like, the, the relationship operates at, at kind of two levels. There's operational day-to-day -day stuff that goes on all the time in yeah. which, regardless of the you know, legitimate political tensions you talk about, that actually happens yeah. and it's fine. And people operate in a perfectly reasonable fashion and it gets a bit fruity when it, <laughs> when, 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 whenever there's money involved yeah. it gets fruity and you know I had nine years as finance minister so there was a lot of fruit in my, in my working relationship with the United Kingdom government um, and then you've got some of the, 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 the more strategic political stuff where actually it's, it's quite odd um, if you take for example, the process that led to the Edinburgh Agreement and the, and the operational arrangements for the referendum in 2014, that was a really um, good, decent, respectful process that ended up with an agreement which we compromised a bit, the UK government compromised a bit, but what we both got was a robust, reliable, respected process yeah. 
for carrying out the referendum. Because you know, nobody said, oh, that was, there was something wrong with that process. Everybody thought that was the gold standard. Indeed, there's a lot of academic writing now which talks about that as the gold standard of a process to Particularly go through. when you compare it to Catalonia or correct, other processes. Correct. So it shows it can be done. So there's that kind of difference of um, relationship. But you then look at another strategic sort of debate, which is the, the handling of Brexit. And it's awful. Like, it's just terrible. And we've been, you know, we, we've been trying to work in as collaborative a fashion as we can to try to make progress, to make sure the interests of the Scottish Parliament, uh, not necessarily the Scottish Government, but the Scottish Parliament, the devolved settlement of which, you know, we are elected under, is protected. And we've had a thoroughly bad experience in trying to do that with the UK Government. Indeed, just a couple of weeks ago, um, one of the House of Commons committees said that the UK government's handling of the EU withdrawal bill had been poor in terms of the dialogue with the devolved administrations. And if, you know, if it happened to be a Welsh minister that was sitting here, they would say exactly the same thing, because that was their experience too. So it does vary from issue to issue, but I, I certainly wouldn't want it to be judged and viewed that somehow um, were, it, you know, were it daggers drawn at all times. It's perfectly good working relationships. It's interesting, I, I went through a lot of discussions with the Treasury in 2016 um, when we were taking on the new powers and establishing the financial rules. And I spent weeks and weeks and weeks in front of um, a Treasury Minister, Greg Hans, getting absolutely nowhere, just absolutely nowhere and making no progress. And at the kind of, you know, last minute, 11th hour, George Osborne walked into the room and we had it fixed in about 15 minutes. And, you know, I kind of thought, well, I could have done with that seven months of my life back, actually, that I've wasted in this room if it could have been done in 15 minutes. So, you know, it depends whether there's a political will to do that. It doesn't do If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's stamps.com, code program. Um, in terms of your own leadership, uh, you, you led the party for, for a number of years. Um, do you ever look at, you know, Nicola Sturgeon and think, oh, I could have been first minister, I could have been the guy that 
potentially delivered an independent Scotland? No. <laughs> there must be a part. There must be a bit of ambition in there that still flickers. There is not a bone <laughs> in my body that would make me think I want to do that job. Why not? Well, I. Well, I think a lot of it. Some of it is to do with um, what you know. I, I, I've done it before. Like I was leader of the SNP before. Mm. I think it's really quite an unusual thing to go back into leadership again. Yeah. Um, so that's the first thing. And the second thing is that I think the First Minister does a superb job. And I hope that she does part of the contribution to do a superb job. It's just got me at her side giving her the support that I can give her. And I think the advantage that she has, and this is where, you know, this is where I've got... Um, it's probably about the, the, the only bit of my, my being that I've got some sympathy for Tony Blair, <laughs> is that you know, if Nicola Sturgeon is taking some advice from me, she hasn't got any doubt in her mind why I'm giving her the advice I'm giving her. I'm giving her the advice because I think it's the right thing to do. But Tony Blair's sitting with Gordon Brown in front of her, <laughs> you know, like being told to do something, thinking, why on earth is this man suggesting I should do this, given what I'm reading in the newspapers of bad-mouthing against all this. I, I have no idea how that worked. Absolutely no idea how it's possible for Tony Blair to have a conversation with Gordon Brown and think, well, that's a reliable piece of advice that I've just been given, that was given to me with a generous spirit about it. Um, I, I, I think that, and, and in political leadership, political leadership is a very lonely thing. Mm. So if you can get somebody around about you who you feel is giving you advice, which is well-intentioned and well thought through and for the best, I think that's, that, that's a useful role to perform. So when you were leading the party, did you immediately know who those people were? Or did you have to go through an experience of finding those people during your leadership? No, I, 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 I suppose it would, it, it would change over time that you would see people able to give you that contribution and that advice. But generally I kept a pretty broad team around about me because my style is to try to bring as many people together as I possibly can do in common purpose because I think in all my political experience, you tend to achieve an awful lot more if you do that than if you, um, if you operate in a very narrow bandwidth. Yeah. And in terms of uh, your own personal ambition at the time, there must have been part of you that thought, well, you stood effectively to be... Oh, yeah, of course. Well, like, you know, that, at that stage, yeah, of course. I, was, you know, I led the SNP into the 2003 election. I prepared for that on the basis of... Um, I wanted us to win. We did our level best to do that. It didn't turn out very well for us. We lost a lot of seats. And I had to think long and hard about, well, why has that happened? Is it to do with me? And sometimes you have to, as a political leader, reflect on your own performance and contribution. Is it part of the direction that I've taken? I think a lot of our difficulties at that time came about because of internal division. So the public out there thought, well, you know, I'm seeing this lot kind of not exactly looking at ease with each other in front of me. So how are they going to get on in government? Um, which is part of, I think, our current strength, that people look at us and say, well, they all stick together quite well. They argue a, you know, a complementary set of views in different areas of policy. So they can have con we can have confidence in those individuals. So um, I think that contributed quite significantly. I think the, the political mood in Scotland at the time was not... It wasn't particularly bold. Um, devolution was not 
looking like it was doing particularly well. It wasn't having this transformative effect on people's lives that people thought. And that would affect us more than it would affect our political opponents. So there wasn't a, a sense of, um, uh, of, uh, of moving on to the next step within Scottish politics. And I think fundamentally I had to accept that I hadn't managed to make the connection with the public as well as I would have liked to have done to then become a First Minister. So when you say make the connection with the public, do you mean in terms of when you were on you know, TV shows or on the doorstep? Was it that the public wanted... What, what did the public want and what weren't you giving them? I well, I think what the public... I think what the public, I, what I, I suppose I had to come to, to terms with, was the fact the public wanted something which was not represented by me. But, <laughs> you know, so so that's, a kind of hard, that's a very hard point to come to terms with as a politician. But then you, you sometimes just have to do that. I think the public were, you know, we were four years into devolution. Devolution had come to Scotland as this absolutely fantastic initiative that would change the lives of individuals. And it had been a pretty low-key first few years mm. with an awful lot of, you know, just not a particularly ambitious agenda. And I think that affected the political climate. People didn't feel, ah, you know, we can, you know, we can see exciting things happening yeah. here. And here's John Swinney able to take us to those exciting things. It was all a bit kind of steady as she goes. How much is, was it to do, do you think, with just where politics was at that time? If you think of the big Scottish political figures, they were... In the Labour Party, Gordon Brown was Chancellor of the Exchequer. You had people like John Reid, Alistair Darling, big national UK-level Scottish figures. Maybe people weren't looking at Holyrood as much for a, a, a political identity as they would be doing now. And what you could say about yourself, if you've been perhaps kinder on yourself than you've, than you've been, is that maybe people at the time didn't know John Swinney, because now that they do, your reputation is... is you're admired across party. You're seen yeah. as one of the most reasonable people in, in politics. Yeah. You're, you're very popular. I think that's. I think there's a certainly. I think the action was perceived to be at Westminster and not at Holyrood. I think that's. Yeah. I think that, that's the point I'm trying to make. That yeah. it was. You know, there wasn't a dynamism about Holyrood at the time, um, and I think that was the. You know, I think that was the, the, the part of the political difficulty. But it's also early days, yes. and you know, the Parliament was finding its feet, was finding its way, it's working, and we were finding a different way of working. And the SNP's had to go through a big transition to get from being um, a party that was, you know, really you know, quite effective at being an opposition party into being a party that looked like a government. And I think we've made that transition. Well, we obviously have made that transition because we've been the government for 11 years. But it's, uh, it's a transition that we've made, but it wasn't one that we made by accident. We had to very clearly adapt and change to get to that. Uh, you had a very different leadership style and you still possess a very different style to your, to your predecessor as leader of the SFB and successor under the same man, Alex Salmond. Um, do you think, I mean, when you look at the way his career goes, do you, do you think you'll ever have your own show in Russia today? <laughs> <laughs> well, I don't know. I, I kind of feel, feel as if this is a bit of an audition for whether or not I have a, 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 a career in broadcasting. That but is water, not knobby chop. Well, exactly. <laughs> I'm... I'm, I'm, I'm I'm glad that I checked up on that uh, half an hour into this interview and not in the first minute. But uh, um, I, I don't really think um, I don't really think a TV show is going to be my forty, and um, I think it's unlikely in Russia today. <laughs> in terms of other things, do you ever think, oh, had I not been a politician, I'd rather have done something else? And what would that have been? Well, I find myself in the, the actually the, the only career step that I 
would have wanted to make at some stage, which I've not made, yeah. is to be a teacher, which is the ultimate irony with the job I'm now doing. And <laughs> when I came out of this university, I wanted to be a history teacher, and they there was no history teachers being recruited or, or trained at that time. So it just was closed off as an option. So I went off and did other things and took a very different path through the world of finance and ended up going into Parliament. But I had that rather un that, that unfulfilled ambition to be a teacher. And I now find myself as the Education Secretary on the receiving end of large amounts of advice about <laughs> education from many, many teachers around the country, including one I was speaking to this morning. Well, uh, and a very topical time to be talking about education, obviously in the summer when people are getting their exam results. Uh, Education will be made a priority by the First Minister. Obviously, it's something that you've always been passionate about. Uh, it is, in terms of the SNP's record, a slightly problematic area compared to relative success in the health service that people um, say, you know, the, the results this week are that the higher results are, are still coming down rather than going up. They're, you know, they're in the mid-70%. So it's still very good, but it's not perhaps the progress that you would like to see. What are the challenges facing education, specifically in Scotland, um, are, is it just simply about having a radical education policy, like looking at something like academies and the sort of things that Lord Adonis has done, or is it different societal pressures in Scotland that maybe aren't present in the rest of the UK? I think what, what the central part of our education policy is about closing the poverty-related attainment gap. And when I think back, you know, when I think back to my education in this city um, in the 1970s, 1980s, the poverty-related attainment gap persisted at that time. Yeah. And I can, as I think back to that period, I can think how it manifested itself. It manifested itself in, well, in this one simple statistic. I was part of a 120-year group of pupils. And when we got to the end, so we started, 120 of us started, yeah. and eight of us finished sixth year. My God. Eight. And most of the intervening number left at the end of fourth year with poor qualifications. And I went to, you know, so I went to a, a, a comprehensive school in the west of the city, and that's the experience. So that was the poverty-related attainment gap presenting itself there. Yeah. And I came out of that school, came to this university, got a great education, continued a great education from that school, I might add, in this university, and went on. But there were a lot of my peers didn't do very well. And essentially, the, that gap has persisted over the, the course of those years. Yeah. And what we're focused on is closing that gap as quickly as we possibly can do. Now, we think it'll take us 10 years to do that, um, but it's, that's what we're focused on doing. And we're focused on doing that by very direct interventions in addressing the obstacles to learning that young people will have. If a young person turns up at school and they're hungry in the morning because they've not had any breakfast at home, their learning ability is going to be diminished. And if they can't take part fully in the school's activities and all the different learning opportunities because poverty is an impediment, if they can't get the, the support at home because there might not be the levels of literacy and numeracy at home to support pupils, then that's a disadvantage. So we're focusing a lot of our efforts on trying to attack that difficulty that's persisted in Scottish politics, in, in Scottish uh, education for many years. And I think, you know, I think the evidence shows that we're beginning to see that gap narrowing. Um, so how I articulate our education policy is to say 
that we are determined to pursue excellence and equity for all. Excellence by improving standards for everybody, equity by making sure that regardless of the background of young people, they're able to prosper as a consequence. Uh, some of your opponents would say, it, it, uh, perhaps an oversimplification of the analysis, but that in giving free tuition fees and having free higher education, that has been at the cost of effectively comprehensive school-age education. Is there any truth to that, that the priority has been put on students rather than, than schools? Uh, no, because we, we have an obligation to support our university sector. We'd be supporting our university sector in one shape or form or the other. Um, what we've got to make sure is that at every stage of the, the journey of a learner through our system, where we are, you know, for example, investing heavily in early learning and childcare, we've put resources directly to schools to give them control of resources so they can shape the education priorities that meet the needs of children and young people in schools, and then supporting college and university students with, with places is, 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 is vital to make sure that at every stage of the learner's journey, um, individuals are well supported in pursuing their opportunities. And in terms of something like academies, is that something that you would consider or is, it, is there an ideological uh, opposition to that? It, what, see, we, we live in a, in, a, in, a, in a country where I want to be able to confidently say to parents that wherever their child goes into a school in the country, they will be going into an excellent school. Mm. So choice, you know, if you live in the north coast of Scotland, it's kind of difficult to offer a range of choices about schools to be available. So if we can't offer that to the north of Scotland, what we have to be able to offer to, to every school is quality and excellence. So that's why, that's why we're focused in the way that we're focused. And I look at a lot of the stuff that's gone on in the uh, academisation of education in England. Um, I see a lot of volatility. Uh, I see... Uh, vast amounts of public money being used without discernible improvements in performance as a consequence. And I think if we're going to make choices, the choice I make is to make sure that every school in the country is delivering excellent education to young people. When you, I mean, I'm sure you visit lots of schools. How difficult is it to go to a school as a politician? Uh, 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 you know, I'm sure the teaching stuff are always very similar in front of the, the pupils, but do, do pupils ever give you a lip? Oh, yeah, of course. <laughs> yeah. And, what sort and, of stuff do you get? Well, you get, you know, you'll get all sorts of very direct questions, um, and you'll get lo you'll get lots of challenge about things, and you'll it's not just the pupils, you'll get that from the teaching staff as well, and I and I think that's important. Like I, when I go to a school, I always ask for time where I can meet, not, maybe not all the teaching staff, but some of the teaching staff, privately, without all the kind of naughty kids there. No, I was more thinking about the naughty senior management there, <laughs> um, to actually hear yeah. from them what's going on, what's it like, what do I need to be thinking about, what do I need to be addressing to make sure that you're getting the support that you require and what are the things I should be focused on. And I get a tremendous amount of value out of those conversations with teaching staff. In terms of uh, what happens next for, for, for the SNP and for yourself, how much, because it, it strikes me that particular movements have reserves of energy that, that, that other movements don't have, and Tommy Sheridan was here last week, and I'm sure there were people here for that. Remarkable levels of energy that he's got, and, and you, see it, you see it with Jeremy Corbyn's supporters at the moment. They're fired up, and you, it looks like a fire that will, will possibly burn for a long time. For you personally, how much longer do you feel like you want to keep fighting the fight, or is there part of you that thinks, oh, you know, I've done my bit, I just want to be in the garden for a bit? 
Uh, well, I certainly don't want to be in the garden, and the, and the garden certainly wouldn't welcome me, I can tell you, <laughs> uh, if that was likely. I, um, I've, yeah, I've been, uh, yeah, next, next May, I've been a member of the SNP for 40 years. You're going to have a party? Well, I, I wouldn't, I, well, oh, you've got to celebrate well, it. Well, you could, you could come, you could, you could come and do the stand-up uh, on that particular occasion. <laughs> I but think I'd get lynched. Well, you, no, I'm sure you'd get, you'd, <laughs> get the, what you want. you'd get the usual warm welcome from SNP members. <laughs> but, so, and I, I've, it's been the most, the greatest privilege of my life yeah. to spend my life the way I've spent uh, the, the, can, the, you know, the friendships I've made through my political work. I've had an opportunity to serve my country, which again, back 1979, did I think I'd end up a government minister, a member of a Scottish parliament, deputy first minister of Scotland? No, I didn't. I didn't mm. think for a minute that that would happen. So it's been an extraordinary privilege. And that really, you know, that gives me a tremendous amount of energy as a consequence, because yes. it is an extraordinary privilege to be able to do this. And particularly given the fact that it felt so ridiculously unlikely when I started out 40 years ago. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm still absolutely devoted to my politics and my cause. Um, obviously, how long I remain a government minister is a matter not for me, but for the First Minister. Um, and she makes her choices about that. But uh, I certainly enjoy it and, and revel in it. In terms of, uh, you know, the cause, and, and obviously it's something very close to your heart, and, and started with a, a, an opposition to nuclear weapons, but part of so many other different things. I mean, I was in Glasgow on referendum day in 2014, and I don't think I've ever experienced anything like it as a citizen, and I obviously wasn't able to vote in that election. But the hope that the Yes campaign gave to people was real. There was an atmosphere on the streets. I personal preference was that I really hoped that Scotland was going to stay in the UK um, for similar reasons that I think you wanted to leave, for, for social justice and things like that. But it, it, the effect that that campaign had on the public was undeniable, particularly in, in places like Glasgow, and it was inspirational, and it was a positive image of a future, and it was inspirational, and it was emotional for people. I just wonder if independence is never delivered, would that, would that sadden you, or would you be able to be philosophical about the successes that the SNP has had? I'd be, on the, I'd be on the philosophical side of it, because um, I, I think Scotland's a better country, today from for a better country for having had a parliament and had the ability to exercise different choices. We've made very different choices to the UK government on a number of different questions and as a consequence Scotland is a, is a, more, is a healthier society, a more vibrant society, uh, a more tolerant society, a more understanding society and I'm very proud of what's been achieved, not just by the government of which I'm a member but by our predecessors. You know, a lot of good things happened when they were in office as well. And um, I think that's made Scotland a better country. So I'm, I'm, I feel that such a lot of progress has been made. That gives me a lot of satisfaction. Of course, I would love to see Scotland independent, but you know, I'll continue making my contribution. But I, I'm, I'm deeply encouraged by and moved by what we've achieved so far. If, if that dream was to be realised, and it's, it's entirely conceivable that it could happen in the relatively, you know, recent, uh, in the next few years. Um, what would you miss most about the UK? <laughs> well, that's, um, I suppose to go back to your first question now, but I'd, I'd, I'd miss all that kind of broadcasting commentary about <laughs> Scottish <laughs> failure. Um, I, I think, you know, one of the things that I, I've gone through in the EU referendum process mm -hmm. and all of its aftermath 
And I felt, I felt a real sense of loss the day after yes. the EU referendum. So, and I, was a, I suppose I was a wee bit surprised how I felt, but I did feel a tangible sense of loss. And I think what that's made me better able to do is to understand how no voters yeah. in the Scottish referendum were feeling in the run-up to the referendum, that they felt they might have a sense of loss. Yes. And that, I hope, helps me to understand and articulate more effectively to no voters why I think they should be persuaded by voting yes in a future referendum. I had a rumour this summer, and I have no idea how true it is, but that at the World Cup, you were supporting England. Well, I went through... I went I'm not through, trying to turn the audience against you, I no, promise. No, at all. I'm sure, I'm sure, I'm sure that, was, that was achieved long ago. <laughs> but the, I, I was at, the party conference took place in, in June up in Aberdeen, and one of the BBC correspondents was going around asking people who they were supporting. And, of course, you know, every country under the, that was competing, and even some that weren't competing, <laughs> were getting the enthusiastic support of SNP Scotland. members. So I thought, oh, well, <laughs> let's, let's, let's keep our feet on the ground here, Matt. And I, I thought, well, for the sake of decency, I'll say, well, I'll, I'll be supporting England, which actually was quite true, because I was, I was impressed by, uh, I thought the England team and their, the mood music and Gareth Southgate's approach was a very different kind of character to what I'd seen before. And actually, I, I've got a seven-year-old son who is completely and utterly football daft, and I actually watched, I, I'm not, I don't really, when there's a World Cup on, yeah. the last World Cup I followed assiduously was in 1998. Oh, John and Collins against Brazil. But, you know, so it's a kind of, you know, you, you understand why I was doing that. <laughs> so I'm not, I don't really kind of sit down and follow a whole World Cup. But my football daft son had me completely required to be following this. And the more and more it went through, I was really enthusiastically <laughs> supporting England to be successful. And I was disappointed when they didn't. That's very so disappointed. I mean, it's, I, I remember reading it. and I, I that's, got probably, that's probably the end for me now, I would think. That'll be all <laughs> over. <laughs> well, there's no voters. On the, you know, maybe that's... Oh, yeah. But, uh, but uh, yeah, I actually it? thought, well, it was... Well, I enjoyed it. I, I don't want to be too soppy about it. I, I think it is completely unreasonable. And the debate happens every tournament. People say, why aren't Scottish and Irish and Welsh people supporting England? Of course they're not, because we're rivals, and that's the essence yeah, of sport. Yeah. So it, I think it's completely unreasonable to expect people to do that. However, when people do do it, it I can't tell you how much it means. Like, I felt so emotional when I found out you were Because it's been, and I'm sure, you know, it's like this thing from Has it been a long time coming, is it? Well, it's just... Find anybody <laughs> that would do this. Well, it's just, it's more that I count myself as a progressive chap. And being English and progressive... It, or more to the point, being progressive and owning Englishness is a really rare thing. And Scotland has its own proud progressive tradition, as does Wales. You know, there's a Celtic people's history that England hasn't fully grasped. Uh, so when it comes around stuff like the World Cup, whether it's Southgate or Lingard or Stur whoever it is that does it, whenever there's a kind of positive Englishness in the air that's very rare, it just means so much when other people kind of... Yeah. Um, get involved in it so thanks for that well I enjoyed it <laughs> and I was and I, and I was genuinely sorry that England didn't make it 
I mean, 20 minutes, that, oh my, anyway, this isn't, the forum. <laughs> this isn't the forum, but it was close. We were very lucky, but we were very close. And we've got a bit of time to take a couple of questions from the audience. So uh, the house lights will come up. We do have a roving mic. If you could indicate clearly, and um, if we could ask very please uh, for one-sentence questions and one-sentence answers, and we'll try and get around them all. So um, where's the microphone? Do we have a microphone? Where is it? Is there an... Oh no, th that's, that's for, there's a roving mic somewhere. Is there a member of venue stuff for the microphone? I have a loud voice. Oh yes, well yes, uh, it's for the podcast. We were meant, okay, there isn't one. So if you shout them out, I will repeat them. But there is a, the, the, the chap there, yeah. There's a second independence referendum and the answer is no again. What do you think will happen to the SNP? If there's a second independence referendum, the answer is no. What happens to the SNP? I, I'm sure the SNP will continue to believe in Scottish independence. <laughs> <laughs> Solid. Uh, right, is, there was a question on this side. Yes, the, the young lad there, yeah. Um, do you view independence as a physical absolute? Is there any alternative that you could provide a counter? Okay, actually, the microphone would help. Thank you for that. Cheers. Um, do you view independence as a political absolute, or is there any alternative that you would accept? Well, when I, when I, when I joined the SNP, in 1979, the concept of independence that the SNP argued for was independence but not membership of the European, well, as it was then, the European Economic Community. Subsequent to that, the SNP changed its position, at, you know, I, I have to say with encouragement from me, to be a pro-EU um, membership party. Um, and that obviously accepts a limita uh, some degree of limitation of the sovereignty of a member state. Uh, so I, I use that to illustrate the fact that the concept of independence to me is about the people of Scotland being able to make a sovereign choice about the relationships into which they enter and the decisions they make. And if the people of Scotland decide they want to be part of a collaborative and cooperative arrangement that cedes some sovereignty, to me that's perfectly acceptable. So it's fundamentally about enabling the people of Scotland to exercise that, that choice and to determine the relationships and the approaches that they would take. Okay, we've got time for one last question. Um, yes, the lady just down here. What would oh, we'll just wait for the microphone. Here we go. Sorry. That's right. What would your advice be for the young word, the uh, leader of my country? <laughs> well, great question. I think um, resign. We've uh, not at all. <laughs> we, we've we've enjoyed a really we've enjoyed a really warm relationship with Leanne Wood. We think she's done a fantastic job in strengthening Plaid Cymru. Um, I would encourage her to um, focus very much on, on two things. On certainly holding the Assembly Government to account, which is what any leader of the opposition should do, but also in setting out a really bold vision for how Wales can be a more successful country. And I think that's a formula that will work well for her. John, there's only time for one last question. It's a question that really has dominated British politics for the last two or three years, and I have to put it to you. What's the naughtiest thing you've ever done? <laughs> <laughs> Um, uh, I, I suspect the naughtiest thing I've ever done was probably somewhere in the precincts of the TV Royal Union, and I should go no further than that. <laughs> well, maybe for next year. Ladies and gentlemen, this has been an absolute thrill. Thank you so much for coming. Um, I'm doing my own show, Brexit Through the Gift Shop, every night at half eight at the Pleasance Courtyard. Thank you for coming. You can download the podcast, but please show your appreciation for the fantastic John Swinney. <laughs> Thank you.
Well, John Swilly there taking us on a an enthralling hour, really, of, of political discussion. And the thing that really stuck with me, and I've thought about so much since, was his emotional reaction at leaving the European Union and how it, that really helped him understand how no voters in Scotland would have felt had Scotland left the UK. And you don't often hear that... Um, almost that gentleness towards the other side in, in the independence debate, certainly not from one of the leading figures and certainly not in such a, an emotional way, understanding the connection that people feel. Uh, and that, I think, is why he's such a powerful uh, political figure in his post-leadership role. And it, I thought it was very harsh on himself about his leadership role, but it is always refreshing when you talk to politicians who are aware of the things that did and didn't go right for them. Uh, and it, just in general... He's such a naturally pleasant man that when you spend time with someone like that, it's very hard not to like them, even if you don't agree with them on certain things or don't agree with them at all. Um, he just has a... He's a very decent man. Very similar, actually, and not in exactly the same way, but to the um, to the experience of Tessa Jowell, that there are some people that politics is a different experience for them. Of course they have their... Um, loyalties and they have their own ideology, they have their own beliefs that they're campaigning for. But there is something a little bit extra about some people that go into politics. And Tessa obviously is in a, in a league of her own and I don't think I'll ever meet anyone as magical and as special as that. But if there's a hint of that in anyone else that I've interviewed, it, it would be in John Swinney. There's a there's something a little bit extra. Maybe there's just a sense of kindness about him. Um, maybe it's the fact that he's a, a, a real gentleman. There's just something a bit more there and that I really felt during that interview, uh, and it was a real pleasure to talk to him. So, the political party returns to London the last Wednesday of September. Um, I think most of the shows are sold out well into next year, but always check the Other Palace website, otherpalace.co.uk, and check my Twitter feed, at Matt Ford, because um, often on the day, tickets do come up available. Um, I'm on the verge of announcing some brilliant guests, as always, of course. Um, and the weekly ones will return soon, so I hope you've had a great summer. I mean, the World Cup, anyway. I'm not going to talk about the World Cup on it because it, it feels a long time ago, and maybe this isn't the forum, but my word, uh, what a wonderful summer we've had. Um, and so we will return with a weekly podcast soon and the monthly podcast uh, in a few weeks. So, as always, thank you for downloading this. If you could share it, tell your friends about it. If you could leave an iTunes review, I know this is becoming... A, a weekly um, request now but it really does help other people find it and this is a labour of love for me and um, it's just great to know that so many other people can listen to it so thank you and uh, I'll see you soon When you make decisions for your company you look for the no-brainers if you have a lot of mailing to do stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.